Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago whether I really wanted them to read all the way back through the Ten Commandments every week, and I said, you know, I mean, it would be a little awkward if you just got up and said, you shall not steal, you know. Um, That'd be short. Uh, But I said, no, I really want you to read them every week. I want to go all the way back through them because I think repetition is the mother of learning. And it's really good for us, frankly, to hear them again and again and again and again as we make our way through them. You know, one of the things that we actually have not talked about as we've made our way through the Ten Commandments these last several weeks now is the fact that, as Matt kind of mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, that they're not just negative, but that they're positive. In other words, they don't just come to us and tell us what we are not to do. Clearly, they do that. But they also come to us and by very clear implication, command us to actually do things. And I'll give you two examples from the last two weeks. So two weeks ago, Matt got up here and preached, I thought, a brilliant sermon on you shall not murder, but just listen to the command, you shall not murder. Okay, so don't do that. Got it. That's what I'm not to do. But what else does it teach me? It teaches me the high value that God places on life. What is the point of the commandment, guys? It is to protect life, and as one who seeks to follow Him, what therefore then am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to protect life. I'm supposed to promote life. I'm supposed to be all about life. Not only do I not take it, I'm for it in every possible way. You shall not commit adultery. That's what we heard last week. Why? Because adultery is disruptive of marriage, and God highly values marriage, and we should highly value marriage, and therefore we should not commit adultery. But in addition to that, What should we do? We should protect marriage. We should promote marriage. We should be all about marriage. Okay, today we come to Exodus 20, verse 15, and God says, you shall not steal. And listen, for all of the things that we can steal, and there are a lot of things, money, time, energy, effort, innocence. We can steal someone's reputation. I hate to point this out, but you can steal music. You can steal television. You can steal movies. Just let that sit for a minute. Very inconvenient, isn't it? all kinds of things that you can steal, and there are all kinds of ways that you can steal these things, but it's still a pretty straightforward commandment, isn't it? 
Thou shalt not steal. Okay, good. Don't steal. Got it. But what am I supposed to do positively in response to this command? Well, if you think about it, it's the opposite of stealing. So the opposite of taking is giving. There it is. Tim Keller says this. I think it's brilliant. He says, you have not stopped being a thief when you stop taking. You have stopped being a thief when you start giving. That is radically biblical. We see it all the way through the Bible. Guys, God comes to us and in His Word He says, listen, here's the deal. I bless you with time, with abilities, with energy, with effort, with emotional capacities, with money, with resource, with all of these other things. I bless you, God says, to be a blessing. Solomon in the Proverbs comes to us and says, hey, and he's talking about resources and money in this particular instance, but you could apply it to any of these other areas as well. He says, here's the deal. Those who have are thieves if they don't share it with those who don't. You're like, hey, wait a minute, because I've gotten everything that I have by honest means. So, I mean, how can you call me a thief? God's like, I can call you a thief because, first of all, I gave you everything that you have, starting with life and ability and talents and all of this other stuff that you use to collect all of this. And incidentally, I have given you all that you have, not just for you. I've given you all that you have for the benefit of these other people who are in need around you. And here's the deal. When you deprive them of that, you deprive them of what belongs not to you but to them. You have not stopped being a thief when you stop taking. You've stopped being a thief, well, when you start giving. And what I want to do today is I want to look at a great example of this that we find in the Bible in, in a man named Zacchaeus. And, uh, and again, as, as Matt just indicated, all right, so here's the deal. If you know anything about Zacchaeus or if you know the song about Zacchaeus that you just sang, you know that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, lacking in enthusiasm, but that's the right answer, okay? Good grief. All right, so he was a wee little man, which is suggestive, I think, not just to the fact that he was small in stature. I think it suggests that he was small in stature because he was a physically deformed man. But he's not just physically deformed, he is deformed in soul. And that's the point of connection, guys. When Luke gives us this story He's giving us our story. And if you're humble enough, you'll see it. The story of Zacchaeus takes place in the city of Jericho, which in the days of Jesus was an absolutely magnificently beautiful place. It was referred to as the Eden of Palestine. So you can hear the reference to the paradisal garden of Eden in that. And it was a garden-like place. So it was famous for its balsam groves, for its date palms. It was the rose capital of the Middle East. So not only was it beautiful, it was fragrant. Ancient Jericho was located six miles north of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest elevation on the face of the planet. So when you're standing at the Dead Sea, that's as low as you can go. And because it's a low elevation in that whole area, Jericho was unseasonably warm. And so year-round, it was warm. And Jericho became sort of the vacation destination in the wintertime for the rich and famous. And so Herod the Great, for example, built a theater there. Archelaus built a palace there. Mark Antony gave Jericho as a token of his affections to Cleopatra. That's pretty cool. It's amazing. It was also a place of great commerce. It was located on one of the largest trade routes in the whole region of the world that is the Middle East over there. 
And so then when Luke comes to us and he tells us in Luke 19, beginning in verse 1, that Jesus, who incidentally is going to enter into the city of Jericho. He's going to walk through the main street, which cuts right through the center of town. And then he's going to walk out the other side of town. And then he's going to walk not too many miles up to the city of Jerusalem, where he will be nailed to a tree. He's near the end. He's going to be crucified. All right, when Luke tells us in this this story that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He's calling to mind this incredibly beautiful, fragrant, wealthy, highly cultured, sophisticated, significant city whose main street that ran right down the center of town was for the sake of beauty, for the sake of shade, because it's hot, for the sake of sustenance. This is a fruit-producing tree. The main street was lined with these great, big, beautiful sycamore fig trees. But on this particular occasion, it was also lined with people. And the reason for that is because Jesus is at the height of his fame. At this point, everybody knows who he is. Everybody wants to see him. And so when they get word that, you know, Jesus is going to be passing through town on his way up to Jerusalem, man, they empty out their offices. Like everybody shows up on the side of the street, including, incidentally, this man named Zacchaeus. Before we read in verse 2 that there was a man named Zacchaeus, who again is deformed in body. We got that but in soul, and that's the part we can relate to, I hope. There was a man named Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus, Luke says, was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and that betrays his deformity, the one of his soul. And the reason for that is this, that when Rome invaded a territory, as they had done here with Palestine, after they raped and pillaged and plundered its citizens, let that sit for a moment, Try to imagine that. They then took the territory that they conquered, they divided it up into different taxing districts, and then they came to the local people, the indigenous people that they had just conquered, and they auctioned off the taxing districts to local people. Why? Because the local people knew where the money was, and that's what they're trying to get by way of taxation. But what that meant, practically speaking, is that one of your own countrymen, somebody you went to school with, maybe somebody that lives on your street, maybe someone in your own family paid money to your hated enemies and conquerors so that he can then help your hated enemies and conquerors take more from you than they had already taken and take it by force if necessary because the way that it worked, if you were the auction winner, is that Rome would then come to you and they would say, hey, okay, so to help you do your job, we want to be sure you're effective at this, we're going to give you the force of Rome. So here's a bunch of soldiers, use them well, And here's the deal. Your taxing district, you know, we estimate that you should give us, let's say, a million dollars a year from your taxing district, but you can collect as much as you want. So you want to collect two million? Knock yourself out. You want to collect five million? We don't care. Here are our soldiers. Give us a million. Take as much as you want. And so when Luke comes to us and he says, look, Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. He's saying he's the guy that won the auction. And then when he says that he was rich, he's saying, listen, he took a lot more than he needed to to pay Rome and to make a living. And yet Luke tells us in verse 3 that Zacchaeus, of all people, was seeking to see who Jesus was. And I love that part of the story. Here is the filthiest guy in some sense in town, and he wants to see Jesus. Why do you think that is? I think the tax collectors were a little kind of a tight-knit group, you know? 
Like we've got recovery groups for a variety of different things. I think it was like a tax collector recovery group. I'm sure that they had tax collector associations and tax collector seminars that they went to. I mean, look, when everyone hates you, all of a sudden you start liking one another. And I wonder if Zacchaeus didn't know that one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, I'm like part of the inner, inner core, was a tax collector named Matthew who had the district up by Capernaum, also a very wealthy district, big trade route, and he walked away from the whole thing to go follow this Jesus. I think Zacchaeus looked around and realized, listen, everyone in this town rejects me. Everyone in this town hates me. Everyone in this town regards me as a thief and as a criminal. I am despised and ridiculed by everyone in this town, but this Jesus who's passing through receives and welcomes tax collectors and sinners. That is hugely encouraging. Because if you get the point of the story as Luke is writing it, the point of the story is that we're all tax collectors and sinners. Jesus takes all comers, guys. And Zacchaeus had that. Like, he got that. So he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd that had already gathered on the main street to get a look at Jesus, Zacchaeus could not see Jesus, and not simply because he was small of stature. If the crowd had liked him, they could have parted and let him walk to the front. He wouldn't have blocked their view. But they didn't like him. And so Zacchaeus did something utterly undignified for a Middle Eastern man. Understanding their culture and knowing that this would bring him shame, he gathers up his robes, he pulls them up, he bares his legs, which is the shameful part. He ties them off at his, at his hip, if you will. And then he does another shameful and undignified thing. He ran. Middle Eastern men did not run. And he ran ahead of Jesus and he climbed up into one of the sycamore fig trees alongside this road, thus making an utter public spectacle of himself. And he did this in order to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass by that particular way. And so if you think about it, what is Zacchaeus doing here? He's effectively saying, hey guys, hey, I'm up here. And here's why. Because I'm a tax collector. I'm a sinner. I'm a man who is deformed, not just physically, but primarily in here. And the life that I have lived has frankly put me up in this tree of sin and guilt and shame. And I'm surrounded by a group of people, naked and exposed in some sense, before God and all of you, and you all ridicule me and you regard me rightly as a thief and as a criminal. That tree and his position in it is really emblematic of, frankly, where his life has put him, or to put it differently, of what he deserved which makes what happens next in the story so remarkable because in verse 5, Luke says that when Jesus came to the place of this tree, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus in the tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus, which, you know, I mean, had to be a total shocker to everyone because how does he know Zacchaeus' name? It's remarkable. He knows everybody's name. But even more shocking is what the name means. It means righteous one or pure one. And so then you have the Son of God looking up into the tree where Zacchaeus is, all clothed in his shame, if you will, and calling him righteous one or pure one. It's, it's 
remarkable. And, and that's not all because Jesus then told Zacchaeus to hurry and what? To come down out of his tree of sin and guilt and shame for I've just changed my plan, Zacchaeus. So here's what I'm going to do. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. But that is not the response of the crowd because the crowd is looking at this and going, wait a minute, to share a meal, much less to stay as a guest at the house of someone was to publicly identify yourself with that person. It's a major cultural statement. From their perspective, he's, they're saying, man, he's so identified with Zacchaeus, good grief, he might as well have just gotten up and replaced him in the tree. They're very disappointed with this Jesus that they've emptied their offices now to come out to see. So when the crowd saw this, it says they all grumbled and said, good grief, look at this. Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, which actually should have been really encouraging really amazing. And now notice the effect of all of this on Zacchaeus because it changes him, guys, from being a taker to being a giver. It's the way that it works. It says that while Jesus was at the home of this self-declared sinner named Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stood and to stand up in that kind of a setting in that day and culture was to effectively say, I am about to make a legal proclamation that will be legally binding on me. It was to take a formal legal posture. And notice what he says. He said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. So right out of the gate, he divests himself of 50% of everything he has. And then he adds this. He says, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and I think we've covered that, haven't we? I hereby restore it fourfold. What's interesting is that the law of Moses would have required him to restore it and then give 20%. So, you know, if, if, if back in that day I took $100 from you, I'd have to give you 100 plus 20. Get the idea? Zacchaeus says, listen, if I've taken $100 from you, I'm going to give you $400. 400, $400. Remarkable. It's amazing. He goes way beyond the requirements of the law. It's what the gospel does. And you say, well, what just happened here? Well, I mean, Zacchaeus just voluntarily bankrupted himself, which had to, you know, kind of make some people around him nervous. Like his wife was probably standing in the back of the room going, hey, you know, <laughs> shut up. You know, like his, his kids are going, wait, what? His accountant is freaking out. His lawyer's at his office breaking out in a rash. He doesn't even know why. <laughs> like if you're his friend, you want to go, Zacchaeus, sit down, man. Stop speaking, you know, or stand up and renounce everything that you just said. This is crazy. Why would you do this? I think the answer to that's easy. The answer to that is because this man has just experienced an authentic conversion from the God of money to the God who is Jesus. It's as simple as that. Can we all agree that money was his God? Because for the God of money, he sold his people, his heritage, his family, his friends, his reputation. He sold out his God itself or himself. Why? Why do I say that? Because he knew as soon as he became a tax collector, he would be declared to be unclean and barred from the temple. So he sold everything. And now he's met Jesus. And in one fell swoop, he gives it all away. Now, that doesn't mean that if you become a Christian, and this will be helpful for some of you who are starting to sweat, a little bead going down, you know, <laughs> that you now have to give away everything that you have. 
But I will tell you that authentically becoming a Christian affects what you do with everything you have. With your time, with your energy, with your abilities, and yes, even with your dollars. How in the world can you rightly reckon with the generosity of God toward you, a tax collector and a sinner, whom God nevertheless with His reckless love pursued and at the expense of the life of His Son purchased out of a tree, if you will, and remain a taker. You have a new life. You have a new God. You have a new source of security. You have a new source of significance. You have a new source of identity. I'm not important because of what I have or what I do. I'm important because Christ died for me. So try to top that one. You can't. And what that does is it frees you. And you're no longer like this with everything. You're like this with everything. Everything with an open hand. The gospel transforms us into ta- from takers into givers. And if you don't see that, then go back to the gospel and say, Lord, capture me with this gospel. Let it start showing up in this way. And we know that it's the gospel because listen to what Jesus says next in response to this declaration by Zacchaeus. In verse 9, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today what? Salvation has come to this house since Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham, okay? Abraham is the model. He's the picture of authentic faith in the Bible. And so what he's not saying is Zacchaeus is now saved, if you will, because he righted all of his wrongs and he gave away the rest of his money to the poor. What Jesus is saying is, no, 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 Zacchaeus was motivated to right all of his wrongs and give the rest of his money to the poor because he has been saved. His heart has been changed. And then standing there in Jericho, just prior to his final ascent to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified on a tree. That's the biblical word, by the way. Tree. Jesus tells us all why he came into the world. He says in verse 10, For the Son of Man, that's Christ, came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And who is that? Well, it's everyone who, like Zacchaeus, realizes that they're deformed, if not in body, then in soul. Does anybody here have a perfect soul? I think not. Who realizes that the life that I've lived, that you've lived, has effectively left us up in a tree, if you will, that we have no answer for. We have no way of removing ourselves from. That there's no escaping. And yet that in love, our God, though our rebellion was ultimately against Him, has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to command us to come down out of our tree. For in the person of Jesus Christ, he climbed up into our tree, the tree of the cross. And in our place, the truly righteous and innocent one, the pure one himself, gave his life that we might be forgiven and that we might receive a new name, which is Zacchaeus, incidentally. It means righteous one and pure one. And the point of today's message is simply that when that truly lays hold of you, okay, here's what it does. It transforms you from a taker into a giver. So I close with this. Have you accepted the forgiveness and the eternal life, the transforming power of the gospel, all that Christ has done for you? Have you received that, that you might be forgiven? That no matter what you've done or who you are, my goodness, Jesus came for you. 
And He alone has the power to make you righteous and pure. And if you've done that, then have you seen this transformation in your life? Because I will tell you, okay, you will not stop being a thief just by stopping taking things. You, you stop being a thief when you start giving. And you don't give dutifully. You don't give begrudgingly. You don't give because you know you're supposed to. You're like Zacchaeus. You're like, hey man, what can I do? Because I want to. My heart has been changed. And that's true in all of the different aspects of your life. All right? So chew on that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this man, Zacchaeus. Uh, Lord, we thank you um, for the corruption, frankly, that we see in his life. Uh, for there is corruption in our lives. We thank you for the transformation that we see in his life, for that is, is what we need in our lives. We thank you for this man who paints, frankly, a very accurate picture of all of us in greater and lesser degrees, in various and different areas, but nevertheless true. And we thank you for the one who is Jesus, who delivers from the whole of it. So Lord, I pray that you would humble us by your Spirit, that you would bring us to our knees, that we would come to this Jesus who scandalizes Himself by consorting with us, that we might humble ourselves and claim the forgiveness that we authentically need. We are Zacchaeus in His corruption, but through faith in Jesus, through what He's done for us on the cross, we are made righteous and pure. We are like Him in that sense too. And then, Lord, with our time and with our energies and with our abilities and with all that you've given to us, God, inspire and motivate us joyfully to quit our taking and to take up giving. Let us know the joy of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.